Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. Episode 16, Too Bad, Just Fine, and Whiteness Center. This one's a bit different today. Back in episode 10, we ended with a conversation, Courtney, that you and I had been sort of struggling with, grappling with, and we just put it on the podcast and heard some good feedback about that. So today's some more grappling. We, uh, we grapple with some stuff from David Kirkland and also some of your listener questions. Yeah. But never fear, listeners, you'll be grateful to know that it isn't just Andrew and I for an entire episode. <laughs> yes. We also have white mom Anna joining us for this conversation. You'll remember her from episode one, the introduction, as well as uh, the hidden gem episode, which was, I think, six. Anna's been deeply, deeply involved with integrated school stuff for a long time now. Yeah, Anna's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes I... I Wish maybe I'd started the podcast with her as a co-host. You know what? Was, Anna and I were talking about that last night. We're sort of too deep in now. Yeah. So. <laughs> if you haven't listened to David Kirkland, episode 14, uh, I'd strongly recommend going and doing that now. It's, I think it's, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's a really yeah. important conversation. Me but too. The first chunk of this episode is us grappling with some of the things that he said. So Yeah, that's right. And then uh, we get a chance to address some of your questions. You all have reached out by email or on the Facebook page and wanting to talk about certain issues. So we are grappling with a few of those. And there are more to come later. But before we jump in, a huge thank you to everyone who donated. Yeah, I mean, who would have thought that asking might lead to donations? Thank you all so much. It actually worked. So if you didn't get a chance to donate, never fear. That donate button is still hanging out right there on the website, integratedschools.org. So if you found value in these podcasts, we'd be really grateful for your support. Yeah. Uh, before we jump into this episode, Courtney, I I am a bit concerned about this one. It feels a little navel-gazy. Andrew, I think this whole podcast is navel-gazy. I suppose that's fair. Now let's take a listen to us looking at our belly buttons. Okay, so Andrew, you had some big feelings about the uh, David Kirkland podcast. Yeah, I would say I had some feelings about it. I felt like he called us out a bit. Yeah, he did. I mean, us as integrated schools or us as white people? Well, well def- definitely both, <laughs> but I was thinking us as integrated schools okay. in the like centering of white people in this work. That, you know, if you don't start this work with the work of Ruby Bridges and the Little Rock Nine and that you're sort of doing a disservice to their legacy. And then tens of thousands of people of color who've been advocating for educational justice forever. Yeah. But do you feel like having him call out was something that undermined the value of like what we're trying to do with the podcast? No, I don't think so. Uh, but I think it I think it highlights the need to be more explicit in recognizing that piece of this work. And recognizing that the work of integrated schools is just one small piece of a larger puzzle. Yeah. If we can find a way to convince a large portion of white people to joyfully, humbly integrate without a colonizing mindset, the work isn't done. Right. And we didn't start that work. Right. Yeah. I th- I mean, I guess that's the biggest thing I took away was like in learning to be a better listener and learning to be a more humble member of a community, a member of a group. There's also paying homage and respect to the people that have been doing this work forever. This isn't new work. Right. And as he was talking about that, it really felt to me like 
So much of the work that we do is talking about behavior charts or nacho teas or potluck dinners. It's this like on the groundness that I think we really have to kind of attend to and think about as white parents and white families who are showing up in these spaces. So we have to, you know, we do have to talk about potlucks and we do have to talk about, you know, recess and <laughs> strawberry milk. Yeah, because that is very much about impact. Well, but it's also about like stuff you are going to confront. You know, you aren't getting necessarily for your kid all of the same things that your white friends are getting for their kids at white spaces. You might not be getting the progressive education, child-centeredness, whatever. But also, my kid isn't getting Coke bottles hurled at them walking in the door. They're not being called racial slurs, just riding the bus, Mm -hmm. right? They didn't need an armed guard to ensure that they would live through the day. Mm -hmm. And so it's an important reminder, right? Like we can talk about the fact that there might be more homework and it might be more like busy work. But if, if sitting next to you in your mind is Ruby Bridges had an armed guard, Mm -hmm. that's how much this mattered. And she was six. And she had an armed guard, not because it was like the only way her parents thought that she could get a good education. She had an armed guard because her parents believed that she deserved to be able to go to whatever school she wanted to go to. Right. It wasn't a like desperation move to be able to get an education. It was a standing up for principles and values that matter in this country. Right. And I think an understanding of Brown that doesn't take into consideration the efforts of communities of color to have a more just and equitable society, not as like a desperation ploy to get a good education for their kids. I I think that's an important framing too. Yeah. And it kind of makes me feel a little bit bad to talk about behavior charts. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is value in the different levels that this work takes place. That stuff is real and that's stuff that people are going to be dealing with. And if we don't talk about that stuff, then Isn't that our job? I mean, if we're talking about where our place is in this work, isn't it like reframing the narrative on the ground level while parents are flapping their wings about strawberry milk? Like, I feel like David Kirkland's time shouldn't be spent on those things. Like, that's what we're here for. Yeah. To to help parents come to the table in a different way because of the truth that is what people like David Kirkland are saying. Yeah, I think that's right. It's still just hard for me to not just turn around and want to say, like, Ruby Bridges had an armed guard. Get over it. Which is not a gentle calling in. That's not usually your thing. That's not. No, that's not usually your thing anyway. In our maximum effort to, like, create a better world and to forward the vision and the mission that we have as an organization, if the day-to-day stuff, if we trivialize it too much, I think people will just take their lunchboxes and go home. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think that's that's where there is some value in more uh, surface level, you know, sort of elements of this work. I mean, maybe this sort of comes back to our last grapple, Courtney, but like David Kirkin's like, sure, like white people should do it because it's the right thing to do, because it's like the only way that we continue to have a country is if we actually make progress on this. Right. And he's sort of like, isn't that enough? I feel like that should be enough, but it's only going to be enough for some people. And who do we lose if that's all we're offering? is, you know, sort of support for the people who are like, this is the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do. But I would also argue that having these micro conversations about the day-to-day stuff, the hope is that it prevents the gravitational pull of colonization in integrating spaces. 
So like, yes, this is the why, but like these micro level conversations is the how, like, how do you deal with chocolate milk? How do you deal with not like, this is how like you let go, but like, we're, we're still going to talk about it. Like how you let go in that situation. And, you know, Kelly put it perfectly when she talked about a reprioritization of values. So like, we're not saying like abandon yourself of all of your desire, but like reprioritize and use the foundation of do it because it's right. And then here's how you make better decisions on the ground to build community. I think that's what we're saying. I think that's exactly right. And and I think the, that piece of the puzzle is a piece of it that communities of color who are fighting for educational justice don't need to be spending their time on. And that's why I think the podcast has such value because it is a, it is such a range of these sort of like global national level issues. And then also like first grade, you're going to drive behavioral change which is really the goal, right? And you're either going to do it because people think that it's worth doing or that it doesn't cost them too much to do. And if you can sort of like move the needle on both of those at the same time, you're more likely to drive more behavior change. Right. Andrew, I know you were wanting to talk a lot about the uh, issue of opportunity gaps versus opportunity barriers. I think that's just like a, that's the language piece. That's the like being more intentional about how we talk about these things and trying to see the ways that the language we use can reinforce the underlying conditions, even if that's not our intent. Right. The same way that we, we say global majority schools as an intentional shorthand to push back against the centering of whiteness. It doesn't always work or doesn't always do it, but I think there's other things like opportunity gaps versus opportunity barriers that if every time you're referring to them, you can say opportunity gaps and don't have to think about the intentional work that went into creating them. I think it's easier to look the other way from that intentionality. Yeah. It's easier to ignore the work that went into creating a system that creates opportunity barriers. And I just think there's a lot of ways that we talk about schools and education and integration that are not always sufficiently thoughtful about the underlying intentionality that those things may or may not convey. Yeah. I think the one that stood out to me a lot was the shift from privilege to license. Mm, yeah. I don't know. There's something about like, you know, I just want to leverage my white privilege in service of my whole community. And it kind of gets under my skin. You know, is it that we need to be more clear about saying unearned white privilege? But then, you know, as David Kirkland is talking about Lewis Gordon's work on white license, it clicked. Because like the the notion of license is something that you possess. There are structures in place in order to possess it, that someone has control over. There are rules to getting it and that you you wield it in places and it has a power. And the other thing yeah. he said about that is that the license is that you feel entitled to something and, and you don't have to care that other people don't have it. Yeah. And so that goes back to the the intentionality piece, right? What stood out to you, Anna? This idea of like not starting with your whiteness for one, which is something that when you're having conversations about race, it's hard not to do. Mm-hmm. And and the idea of integration, like, and the idea of what we're doing at integrated schools, like we didn't invent it. We didn't lay the groundwork for it. Viewing myself as coming to the table of decades and decades of hard fought work versus coming to the table with a new idea 
is really helpful to help me stop centering myself. Yeah. And then the other thing that like, he basically said, you know, racism isn't the root, like racism Mm. is the outcome. Um, and the root, the words he used were fear and avarice Mm -hmm. and holding on to power. Because the other thing Courtney knows I really struggle with is deep resentment at my neighbors (laughs) for their choices. And, and it, I carry it with me around all the time and I water it like a flower, but like that the root of that is fear helps me to, um, lay down my burning hate and pick (laughs) up something else more hopeful, but also the whole idea of holding onto power. And if I'm honest, I need to look myself in the mirror and see where I hold onto power too. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm afraid to be wrong here. I'm being recorded right now and I don't have a PhD in integration. I don't haven't written a book. I don't have the statistics. I don't, I'm, I'm just a mom wanting to be a better human, a better citizen, and to raise kids with a better understanding of social constructs and like their place in the world. And if, if maybe we can direct our efforts as an organization and as a community and into like helping calm those fears and helping other families turn from shadow to light, then those other symptoms of racism and unequal structures and institutionalized bias and all of this stuff, like then we're getting to the root, which is fear. Yeah. I think that also like, like there's a lot of work to be done on whatever that sort of root is, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of version of humanity that projects itself above other people. There's work to be done on that on a bunch of fronts, and we are focusing a lot of energy and intentionality on that around schooling, and some other people may not be, and and there's certainly ways in which in my life I am not undermining every system of power that I could be that I am taking advantage of. That's right. Yeah. I can't, I mean, I can't, I can't focus all, all of my energies on all of it. I think that schools happen to be a very powerful way to push back against that. And like the potential for creating future generations who are better at it is really powerful. But there are plenty of ways in which I am not doing everything I could be to push back against the systems and structures of oppression that exist in our society. Because at some point you have to do your laundry like that. Is that <laughs> sort of yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, yeah. right. Yeah, like there's, there's only so many hours in the day yeah. and there's a, you know, a huge amount of work to be done on that. You know, maybe, maybe your neighbors are not making the same choice that you're making regards to school. Maybe they're making some other choices and sort of doing some of the work in other areas that you don't have the bandwidth or the time or the energy to do. I don't know. I'm a big fan of self-righteous indignation. So I would like to push back (laughs) on that and say, nope, but you know, yep, that's real. But you know, then I think part of the work is to hold one another accountable. You know what I mean? And so that that part matters too. All right, let's hear our first listener question. Hello, I'm Zach. I'm a white dad in Chicago. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and had a question and idea. I'd like to listen to an episode where you discuss situations where enrolling your kid in neighborhood Integrating global majority school really isn't feasible or appropriate for academic or other reasons. I mean, in just about any large city, the quality of schools across a district can vary really wildly. And uh, certainly there are certain schools that don't educate any kid very well. 
and you know, I think uh, integrated schools has been pretty influential in changing my thinking about this. And, and now I think it's pretty clear that white parents often throw in the towel and quit and say it's too hard, it won't work for my super duper extra special kid, uh, often before they should. But you have to imagine there is a point in which maybe for social, academic, or emotional development reasons, uh, a given school just might not be good for your kid. Uh, anyway, uh, waiting in rapt attention for that sort of thing. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Zach. Anna, you want to take a first crack at that? Like, I, I just don't know how often this question is asked from a place of lived experience and how often it's asked from a place of fear of the unknown. I will fundamentally refuse to answer the question, when is it just too bad? Because that's the symptom is asking that question. The cause is something totally different. The cause is the barrage of information we've gotten. The cause is white supremacy culture. The cause is segregation. That's what's caused parents to ask that question is not actually lived experience, but systemic and cultural oppression and this like failure to actually evaluate what's really going on. When we focus on rumor, when we focus on broken narratives, when we focus on the things we think we know, right, about individual communities, figure out what concrete evidence you're basing the evaluation of schools on. Because I think the website that I refuse to name on this podcast, (laughs) but the website with which people wield evidence of effective schools versus ineffective schools, high-performing schools versus low-performing schools, where the way we're learning about schools is fundamentally flawed. So I think with that, it's like, how do you know when a school is just too bad? I think you really have to look at the evidence you are using to make that decision. Is it different for someone who's in a school and things are going poorly or there's the perception that things are going poorly? versus when you are, you know, touring or thinking about or considering. Because I think those are really different places. Yep. And and I have less tolerance for standing at the outset and saying, that one is just too bad for me. And so therefore I will feel sad about the other people's children who go there, but I, I will not. Yeah. So to go back to Kirkland, that school is just too bad is a pitying. Yeah place to be. Yep. Like I pity the people who have to go to that school, but I don't have to. If literally like the school is dangerous for every kid who's in the building, then you should be doing something about it. If that ki- school, if they're going to continue to be kids at that school, why is your kid special? Why should your kid not go to that school when other kids are going to that school? And I think the only way you get to that is a, a, a place of pity. And like Kirkland said, like what what happened to your humanity that you can pity somebody for having to go to the school, you know, when you have so much, when you have the option to not go to the school. Okay, here's your devil's advocate. I'll tell you why. Because I still have laundry to do. I have a full-time job. I'm taking care of my ailing mother. You know, life. My job is my kid. I'm one person. This is a systemic problem. Yeah. Your kid doesn't need an armed guard to get to school. Right. Nobody's throwing Coke bottles at your kid on the way to school. So like, what are you complaining about? The other thing I'd like to sort of interject into this is the idea of putting on a new pair of glasses when we look at a school. And what amazes me every day is the examination that I failed to do originally when my daughter was three, that was like examining what was good at 
said school, Mm. examining what was working and examining like what we could get by being a part of that community. And like, I don't think this is about like, oh, we have so much to give and we need to leverage our white license to get the school more resources or get the school a community garden. It's like, what is there a benefit to going to a low performing school? This may sound insane, but like we have benefited so hugely and it has so enriched our education as a family and my daughter's education as a human that like I would have missed out on that. You know, I think we do talk about this in the two tour pledge, which is wonderful. It's like, can you find things that are working? I see it all the time now at our school, all the dedicated teachers and the dedicated parents and the students, you know, like I think a lot of fears gravitate, especially in middle and high school around like social issue, peer pressure. But like, I think really we have dehumanized global majority schools and forget that they're full of kids actually. Like maybe, yeah, maybe to go back to sort of the, the original question, one is what do you mean when you say it's just too bad? I mean, we talk about the smog, right? There's a lot of ways that we talk about what a good and bad school is that it's not accurate. I think there's also the piece of like, what do you say? Some about like there are schools that do a bad job of educating all kids. I don't know that that's true. I think there are schools where on average kids are not doing very well. I don't think that tells you very much about how your kid would do there, especially when the ways that we tend to measure how well a school is doing is things like standardized test scores that tend to mostly measure how white and or wealthy your student body is. And so to say like, well, this school has really bad test scores means my kid's not going to learn anything there. I don't think that's a fair assessment of a school. So absolutely. on the one hand, like, what are you actually saying when you say that school is quote unquote bad? And then what are you giving up by not going there? You know, is there ever a time where pulling your kid out of a school makes sense? I think probably there are some unique scenarios, but in general, I think that that decision is taken way too lightly. And right. When a school is too bad is also a question of like giving it all up, right? Like, so what are we willing to fight for when we show up and when we have become a part of the school community? I think, you know, standing up and pushing for policies and procedures and programs in partnership, you know, that's being part of the fight, right? So saying a school is too bad is saying that you're not willing to participate in your community. Absolutely. When is a school too bad? Let's examine the system that created that concentration of vulnerability. Because what it feels like that's saying is like, we're then we're blaming students and families. Yep. And we're blaming students and families in concentrations of vulnerability and sidestepping what we've all done to create that system. The idea that we deserve whatever we deserve has been built on the backs of people who have been oppressed. And that's like yucky to look at and think about. Right. Because if we're listening to the question, he's presuming that there are schools who don't educate any students well at all. That's a fundamental premise that maybe I'm hearing you guys kind of pulling the rug out from under. On average, there are definitely schools that have lower test scores than other schools. No question. Like, what does that mean about your kid's experience at that school? Does it mean that your kid is not going to come away having learned something valuable from having been at that school? I don't think so. Like there is learning going on in schools all the time. Are there teachers who are better than other teachers? Absolutely. Is going to a school with on average better test scores a guarantee to get better teachers? Definitely not. Are there schools there that struggle to provide technology education that kids deserve or need to thrive in the world? Probably. Is your kid going to suffer from that? 
my kids aren't they're they're going to learn about technology at home because i happen to be fortunate enough to be able to provide that for them are there schools where the sort of classroom management ability of the teachers is compromised and full focused learning doesn't happen all the time yeah definitely does that mean your kid is going to not do as well on standardized tests maybe not does that mean that your kid is not going to gain some other benefits from having spent time in that space and from having been part of that community? I mean, I think those things are real, right? The issue here is kind of a fundamental one to the model of integration that we're talking about here, where it's white and or privileged families enrolling in global majority schools. There's this cushion of privilege, right? I think you're sort of saying like there's this soft landingness about being in, you know, quote unquote, the worst schools. That when we when we remeasure what the kids aren't learning anything at all, when we when we change that metric up to saying, what are my kids getting out of this? And how can that be something really important to their development as adults? Right. And they will still go on to whatever they want to do with the rest of their lives as white kids. They will still carry all that privilege with them in all the other places that they go. And the potential costs to them of a year with more classroom distractions versus a year with less classroom distractions are really low in terms of like their overall ability to thrive in our society. And so the cost to that are low. Meanwhile, there are kids at that school and my kid leaving doesn't change the fact that there are kids at that school. And those kids at that school, they also are there learning. And there are teachers there trying to teach those kids and working for the good of the school. So like, why do I get to leave? And and also maybe, just maybe, like, yes, they will leave and they will still be white and there will still be the horrible shame of institutionalized bias and white supremacy culture. Like we're working to rid ourselves of that. That's a long fought, hard fought battle. But like maybe they will leave with a more deeply internalized view of their equalness to others that they wouldn't have gotten in a school where every kid at school looked just like them. And it's not like all of the quote unquote good schools have good teachers. There are resource differences for sure. But the same way that the sort of averages don't tell you a whole lot about your kid at a quote unquote bad school, the averages don't tell you a whole lot about your kid at a quote unquote good school. That's right. Right. I mean, a good school has a lot of people who do well on tests. Does that mean your kid's going to do well on tests? Maybe, maybe not. But there's also typically more drugs and better drugs, right? <laughs> and you know, and cyberbullying and getting into the upper grades, the weight of hyper competition and like this race to get every single thing for your college resume, right? And that you volunteered at this nursing home and you took these 28 AP classes and, you know, oh my gosh, my best friend's taking 29 AP classes. My life is going to be a failure. I definitely think that in my experience at least, and I don't, I don't know if there's any like research backing any of this up, but my experience at least is that homogenous spaces are much nastier, that this underlying desire to differentiate rears itself in much uglier ways in homogenous spaces. It's not because you're white. It's because you're Andrew. Right. Which is much harder to deal with. Super Which is much harder to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, the answer is that there's no time at which you leave a school. I think we have a lot of clarity on not making the judgment about a school before you've stepped in the building, before you've become a part of the community, before you've done the work. We're pretty clear on that. I think there is no 
metric by which to judge a school that would tell you, you, you should not send your kid there. If there are other kids who are in that school, if the school is closed and there's no kids who go there, that's a pretty compelling reason not to send your kid there. (laughs) Otherwise I think, yeah. Okay. Is there any circumstance where you would leave a school? I mean, I definitely feel like there's cause to leave a school. If you look around and realize that it's a school full of opportunity hoarding and you're participating in it. I don't think that's what this question was hinting at. However, no, (laughs) no, I'm, I'm sure there are individual circumstances where it makes sense to pull your kid out of a school where there is some combination of school environment and your kid and whatever. This often feels like a way to hastily arrived at conclusion. I don't disagree. I'm just going to say, have either of your kids come home crying repeatedly day after day after day? No. We had that. And? And we didn't move, but it was really, really hard. You know, I, I think it's it's important to hold on to the kinds of ways we've been talking about this. But when it's three in the morning and everyone around you is like, seriously, are you not honoring your child? Like, do you not have respect for your kid? When does your kid have agency in that decision? You know, when they're in first grade? Is it different when they're in 10th grade? When do they get a say? It's really hard. Yeah. I I think there are potentially circumstances in which a particular kid may need to leave a particular school. I don't know what those are, and I don't know like what, like what the sort of metric should be. I mean, I do think there is power in believing in resiliency. I do think there's power in basing decisions on your own kid's experience, not on test scores or other ways that the sort of school as a whole is measured. I do think there's value in relaxing in calming down, mm-hmm. in recognizing that even if you have a year with a teacher that's not great, it's not the end of the world, that there are other kids in that class yeah. with that same teacher who's not great and they potentially don't carry the same like backstop, the same support system that is going to help make sure that doesn't have a longer term, more lasting impact on their lives. And so I think it's important to recognize those things. I think there's probably also scenarios in which all of those things are You have thought about all those things and it still is the right thing to pull your kid out and move your kid to another school. And I think where, where you go from there matters too. Like if you've done the work and you've listened and you've been in community, if you have all the information, if you've examined the system that created the concentration of vulnerability and created the concentration of educational injustice, and you have to make that tough Monday morning decision which I would argue is the burden of that decision is never as hard for white, unfortunately, for white families as it is for families of color. Then it's about where where you go. Do you opt out altogether? Then then we're talking about basing decisions based on fear and and just resigning yourself to participating in a system of opportunity hoarding. But if you're like, no, actually, I've taken all the steps trying to not overly center my child in the conversation. You know, then where are you going? Are you examining those schools? Are you making, you know, a conscious effort to humbly integrate somewhere else? Right. Or are you throwing in the towel and going to the high-performing charter magnet and saying, I tried it, it didn't work? Yeah. Right. Have you come to a place where you recognize the challenges of the school as unique to that school and your kid in that school and not as indicative of failures of schools, quote unquote, like that? Right. If it's schools like that are the problem, then you haven't done enough work. 
if it's this particular school with these particular kids, with this particular leader, with this particular whatever is the problem, yep. and and it really seems untenable, then I think that's a different position to be in. That's and I right. think that's a, and then like you said, right now, like, where are you going? Talking to a friend who's a teacher and she has young kids and we talk a lot about integration. And she said to me, you know, your kid is favored, right? Yeah. You know that it's easier for your kid there than other kids there. Right. And, um, that's, that's really hard to swallow because you don't think that's true or because you know that that's true. I think I, on the one hand, I, I don't want it to be true so badly mm-hmm. that every instinct in me calls out to negate what she's saying and defend and to say that that's not true. My case is different. This is a different situation. But like, I understand the manifestation of racism in the classroom. I, I can't be awake to that on a macro level and blind to it on a micro level. Right. And as nice as it would be to be like, yeah, my school is the hidden gem where like she's not favored. And we sat in silence for a while, which is, as you know, very unusual for me. <laughs> you know, I had to let that sink in and say like, okay, if she's right, what now? Do I move her? Do I pull her out? Am I harder on her to make up for that? You know, so then I'm thinking like, okay, what can I do in this system to demand equity where my child may be receiving special treatment? And like, how much space do I take up? If that's true, what can I do to counteract that? I mean, I think it's true in a lot of places. It's true pretty much everywhere. Like... That is the nature of the white supremacist society that we live in. You know, I mean, I think about like this, the uh, Despite Their Best Intentions book, the structures are set up and it doesn't matter if you are the type of mom who demands that your kid gets put into the advanced class because other moms like you tend to do that. It's easier for the school to just put your kid in the advanced class. It is easier for the school to assume that you are the type of parent who demands a lot than to wait and find out. Yeah. It's easier for the teacher to say, okay, like, let me make sure that I go the extra mile with this mom because you know how white moms are. And so they do. And so I may not be able to control how that plays out from 7.30 to 2.15 Monday through Friday, but like I have the ability to stand up in uncomfortable situations and, and say, what exactly are we talking about with gifted and talented testing? Like, who, who are you testing? That's right. Who are you recommending to be tested? I can show up to PTA meetings consistently demanding that the system with which we operate is inclusive. I can listen more and talk less. Again, really hard. <laughs> yeah. I think not only could you, but we all must, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like absolutely. those are the questions that you're asking in this of the second grade teacher. Like, talk to me about this ego readers group. Or why is it that certain kids are getting in trouble? My son's reporting that some certain kids are getting in trouble, but I'm wondering about things like disparities in discipline. You know, is mm-hmm. that something that gets elevated to a school-wide discussion? And is that something other parents are talking about at the school? 
Yeah. Right. And taking it when your kid who does in fact turn out to be the bully, (laughs) you know, believing that. That's right. I got really excited when my kid came home on the straight face today. I'll tell you that much. Mm. She's usually the wow face. (laughs) She's usually the wow. I'm like, ah, the straight face. There is justice. Thank God. (laughs) And the sweetest irony is like, it was a straight face. And at the bottom, it said, talking. I was like, well, we knew that was going to happen. Wonder where she learned that. (laughs) My personal approach is to be as uninvolved at the classroom level as possible. They're like, we need somebody to bring some stuff in. I'm going to show up with the stuff. If they're like, we need somebody to chaperone this thing. I'm going to be like, if nobody else volunteers, I'm going to, I'm, I'll do it. If somebody else wants to go by all means. I I always write on the, you know, when it comes home, like, do you want to sign up for this thing? I'm always like, only if no one else does. And, and it's great because we have amazing parents who love that stuff. And those opportunities must be shared. Yeah. I try to take up as little time and energy and thought from the teachers as possible, recognizing that they are still going to give me a disproportionate amount of it just based on who I am. And so I just like try to not demand much, you know, without leaving the teacher to not have any support if they need it. Yeah. But like not, not sucking all the air out of the room all the time. Right. But then like whatever leftover energy that leaves me on the school level is like to focus on the systemic macro level, the macro, right? Like Absolutely. if, if I'm going to show up in the building to at least do it on a more macro level where it's easier to focus on all the kids rather than my kid. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I would argue too, like uh, an important thing we can all do is continue to press our school boards to take the issue of racial justice seriously and to ask questions about what programming, what trainings, what evaluations are in place so that this issue is no longer in the shadows, but is, you know, bravely talked about. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on to another question. I'm enjoying your podcast very much. I'm interested in exploring the statement aimed at white and or privileged parents that their kids will be fine at global majority schools. It seems that for many people being, quote, fine is at best just okay. And that one should aspire to excellence and the best because after all, fine is not good enough. Would anyone ever want a cardiac surgeon who is just fine? Surely there are more many arenas in which fine is good enough. And maybe one of those is the K-12 public education. I've heard this a lot. There's a, there's a very like meta level issue with this, which is like, what does it mean to be fine or what does it mean to thrive? And we should say that we say just your kid will be fine a lot. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I say it a lot because like my kid being fine is what I'm after. Um, like I I want my kid to be fine because I think that my kid being fine is actually more likely to lead to them thriving. I think we've too narrowly defined success and excellence. Yes. When we say fine, I actually think fine for the narrow definition of success that we have limited ourselves to. And when I look beyond that sort of two dimensional bank account into like, who, what humans I am bringing in and bringing up in this world. That is more important to me. I mean, I think this really goes to this like imagined future that, that we have for our kid, that every decision we make now is going to have some huge effect on who they are, when really it's so much more cumulative. 
we think of the world in terms of events, but it's really like processes, like these like quiet undulations as opposed to like sharp turns. And so, you know, this idea of like your kid will be just fine. Well, that's not good enough for me. I want my kid to be magic. Number one, our definition of success is too narrowly defined and myopic. And two, I'm very aware of when my desires are way too far in line with opportunity hoarding. And that's not the world I want. Therefore, that would not be, I would not feel successful about that. I would not look at that as success. But I think that this is really like your feeling around your kid, that this is at the super micro level. Who is it that you want your kid to be? Andrew, you were talking about you, you dig the just fine. Like that's what you want for your daughters intentionally is a just fineness. And why is that? Who do you want them to grow up to be? What kinds of adults would you like to see? Because I think that's kind of what this is getting at. Yeah. Right. Like what's our vision for our kids? That's what this question is. And I think a little bit like Kelly was talking about on the Kelly pod, like where we focus our energy on that conversation is in this like middle plane that is not actually that important. It's really hard to to think about that. Like truly like deep down in your heart, what do you actually want for your kid? Like that's, that's a beast of a question, (laughs) you know, like what do I want for my kid? I don't know. There's like a lot of competing values there. I want my kid to be a good person, but I want them to have at least enough success to be able to not worry about things like how they're going to feed themselves or if they want to have a family to be able to take care of their families. It's really hard to weigh out the sort of what do I want to instill in them and what do I want them to come to on their own? What do I want to insist upon and what do I want to nurture in them as they are? I think those are really hard things to grapple with. And so I think like in general, we just don't. And so instead we look at like, I want them to have as many opportunities as they can so they can choose. And so the way that we get opportunities is by giving them all these things that we think they need. They need extracurriculars. They need to play on a sports team. They need to volunteer. They need to go to the good school. They need to get good SAT scores. And then they will have the opportunity to choose to be whoever they want to be. And I don't think that's true. Right. And I think that if you if you actually follow that out in the way that we talk about it now and you actually are able to give them all the things that we think they need, I don't think that you get them to a place where, where they have enough of a sense of their shared humanity with everybody else to actually make the world a better place. Maybe the more appropriate Nicole Hannah-Jones quote for this situation is like, I love my kid more than anything, but I fundamentally don't believe my kid deserves more than any other kid. And I think due to the systems that are in place, she's already gotten a lot more than a lot of other kids. And you're okay with giving up some of the things that a just fine education would offer. Yeah. And in doing that, I have been shocked by how much she's gotten. Not, and, and, you know, David Kirkland talks about it. Like when we have these like highly segregated systems where we, because of fear, we just tend to like only associate with our own, like we miss out so big. And, you know, we left a highly segregated privileged school environment. And I remember one of the moms saying to me, like, isn't it so great to be with a bunch of like-minded people? And like, I, and, and I think in many ways that the, the old me was like, she's right. So great that we're all like doing it in the same way and have the same values and vote for the same people and yeah, like the same kombucha. It's so great. <laughs> I don't even know what kombucha is. 
Courtney, remind us of that David Kirkland quote that was so awesome. Diversity is being asked to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And integration is everyone dancing to their own to their own songs. Yeah. It's me going to a birthday party yesterday to be be a part of and like be in a dance that's not music I'm familiar with. Yeah. And we we went to the same birthday party last year when we were brand new at the school and there was a pinata. And one of the things in the pinata were homemade tiny little plastic spoons dipped in tamarind paste and covered with chili Mm. wrapped in saran wrap. And like, I looked at this last year and I was like, is this heroin? Like, I don't even (laughs) like, this is not individually wrapped candy. Like this goes against... All of my mothering synapses are firing danger. You know, there were no Trader Joe's organic jelly beans in this pinata. There was like Mars bars and blow pops and double bubble. And heroin. Fun dips and these heroin spoons. (laughs) And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to ask. I wasn't sure. And blow me if I did not go to that party yesterday and make sure that there was a tamarind candy. Cause I was, I was excited about it, you know, and like what a huge relinquishing of what I think I want in order to get something so much bigger, which like we can joke is like a tamarind dipped candy spoon wrapped in saran wrap, but like is so symbolic of a reevaluation of priorities when it comes to like what it means to live in society, what it means to live in community, what it means to live in a democracy. I think that's our closer. Courtney, I found some lint. Yeah, it was very navel-gazy. Fairly navel-gazy. A little navel-gazy, maybe. Um, But some of this work is navel-gazing, right? Like, we have to examine ourselves and our intentions, impact, language, values, hopes, dreams. That's part of this. It just can't be the end of this, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think in case anybody wasn't clear, the goal of Integrated Schools, our hopes for this podcast is, you know, to be a, a small part in in building the will to change behavior. And, and that requires some self-reflection. Yeah. Couched in an understanding of history and context. And um, yeah, that's that's a pretty hard line to walk sometimes. I know it's one we don't always do as well as we could, but we're trying. We're grappling with it. And we're very grateful for your feedback. So please keep the voice memos, the emails coming, comments, questions, thoughts for future episodes. Send them hello at integrateschools.org. Yeah. And thank you again to everyone who has donated. Your support of our all-volunteer effort means the world. And we are happy to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. See you next time.